listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. Would you please stand for the reading of Scripture from Matthew chapter 4? Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and only shall you serve him. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came. And we're ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord. It wasn't fair. I was annoyed. That much was certain. Does he not realize how difficult this is for everyone else? These were some thoughts I was having about a year into my job here when I found myself in a situation where I was really annoyed with Pastor Joey. See, here's the situation. Um, Myself and uh, a mutual friend of ours, uh, Jonathan Baker, who's also an elder here, we decided, hey, we're going to go for some runs, maybe train for a half marathon. And and I'm not trying to brag. I'm not that experienced of a runner. But I have run three half marathons, which, if you can do math, is a marathon and a half cumulatively. (laughs) And I think Jonathan has also run some half marathons in his life. And here's, here's Joey, you know. No offense, his legs are much shorter than ours, all right? I've got these nice, long running legs and uh, experienced runner, and we were going to go out for like a seven or eight mile run just to kind of prepare and just keep, keep our ongoing uh, running training going. And Pastor Joey had only picked up running in the most recent months just as a pastime, as he's discovering new hobbies. And then here we are an hour or so in to the seven or eight mile run. <sighs> I'm huffing and puffing, Jonathan is huffing and puffing, and here's Joey, just ready to keep going the whole time, barely breaking a sweat, talking to us the whole time, we can't even have a conversation because I can't breathe, and it was at that moment that I was really annoyed with Pastor Joey. Does he not realize how hard this is for everyone else? I guess he's got that, that running genes, uh, and I don't mean denim but the running genes that run in his family that he just is able to do things that come more difficult for most of us. And in that moment, I was was really frustrated. I mean, if I had the opportunity to take a magic pill or snap my fingers, then just instantly become a faster runner, uh, you bet I would take that. That'd be awesome. But would that really make me a better runner or am I just moving faster? 
right? Because I think part of what it means to be a runner is like the training, the perseverance, the discipline you put in to being a runner. And here I'm just taking the easy way out. Well, I think that's a question we're, we're faced with in a lot of areas of life, right? Like we see this end result that we want to get to. Uh, are we willing to go through the difficulty, the, the pain, the training, the perseverance to get to that end result? Or do we try and take the easy way out? We try and take the shortcut. And here in this third temptation of Jesus that we're studying this morning, we see that Jesus is faced with the same question. But we know how Jesus responds, and we'll get there. But Jesus is telling the devil and the rest of the world, when he says no to this third temptation, that he is willing to suffer in order to accomplish God's plan. Now, by brief uh, way of review, uh, Pastor Joey actually covered the first two temptations. So if you haven't listened to those, go back and listen to those. Those are great. Uh, But in those, he reminded us that the devil is not so much testing Jesus and asking him, like, prove to me that you're the Son of God or, or prove to the world that you're the Son of God. But he's kind of asking him under the surface, what type of Son of God will you be? What type of son of God will you be? He's asking him, are you the type of son of God who will use your authority for your own gain or for the purpose that it was intended? Are you the type of son of God uh, that rests in his relationship with God or are you the type of son of God that tests his relationship with God? So with this question in mind, uh, let's jump in. Uh, If you're um, turning in the black Bibles of the seat in front of you, we're on page 961. Uh, or if you didn't know, you can open up your Faith Church app, click the scripture button, and it takes you right to our passage for today, Matthew 4, 1 through 11. So this morning, we're going to be looking at three aspects of the third test, this third temptation of Jesus, uh, as well as what it means for you and me. So um, the first aspect we're going to look at is uh, what I've called the heart of the test. Ultimately, what is it, what is this temptation that Jesus is being tempted with through Satan? Uh, Now, if you're like me, maybe you've read through the Gospels a lot of times or or several times or or even just familiar enough with this scenario that we're reading, that Jesus is tempted by Satan. There are these three temptations that come to him. And once again, on the surface, it it seems to make sense. Like, okay, in this third temptation, uh, Satan is asking Jesus to bow down and worship him. Okay, pretty straightforward. Jesus says no. We move on. Jesus goes into his ministry. But Um, as Pastor Joey has also pointed out, there is a lot more going under the surface, going on under the surface that we, we want to try and, we want to try and see and understand. So what, what is at the heart? What is, uh, the devil trying to do? Is it a temptation of power and authority and greed, or is it a temptation of disordered worship, worshiping the devil instead of God the Father, or maybe is it something else as well? So, In order to understand this, we need to back up a little bit. Uh, We're in Matthew chapter 4, which comes right after Matthew chapter 3. I was waiting on you guys. Yeah, chapter 3, Matthew chapter 3. And in Matthew chapter 3, we read about Jesus' baptism, which Pastor Jeff also covered a couple weeks ago. Uh, And I'm not going to rehash everything, but one thing I want to point out, uh, when he is baptized, there in verse 17, it says, A voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So the voice from heaven calls Jesus beloved son. And in this, Jesus is being identified as the son of God and the fulfillment to Israel. Right, if you remember something that Pastor Joey mentioned is this term son of God, up until this time, uh, all Hebrew readers would hear that term and think about Israel. The son of God is Israel. 
And so here, Jesus is being identified as the promised king of Israel, the son of God, the Davidic king. So he is on one hand being identified as this king, of all, which has all authority, belongs all authority on heaven and earth. But Jesus in this statement at his baptism is also being identified as the servant, the suffering servant. Um, in Isaiah 42, which is the first of the, what we call the four servant songs in the book of Isaiah, listen to this first verse from Isaiah 42. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. Do you hear the similarities and the echoes of the, what the voice from heaven said at his baptism? So, in Jesus' baptism, his role as Davidic king and Messiah and his role as the suffering servant are being kind of united as he begins his ministry. That he is both king, Messiah, and the suffering servant. Um, and so this is the, the thing that Satan is trying to attack. He's trying to um, bring Jesus down. Um, so, here in Jesus' baptism, he's identifying with us on our humanity, but he's also stepping into this combined role. And if you need a reminder for why we call this the suffering servant uh, and not just the servant of the Lord, um, all you need to do is turn over to the fourth servant song, which is Isaiah 53. I'm just going to read a, a few lines from uh, different parts of Isaiah 53 that talk about this suffering that this servant of the Lord will go through. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was despised, he was, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was smitten by God, afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. And that's just an example. It goes on to talk about all the other ways that this servant must suffer. So, with this context in mind, Jesus, in these two roles, Davidic king, suffering servant, together in his baptism, he is immediately then led into the wilderness, tempted by Satan. We've already covered the first two temptations, so now we're kind of skipping ahead to where we are today, the third test, the third temptation. So, what is the test? Uh, there in Matthew 4, it says this, Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. So Satan is asking Jesus, pretty simply, to bow down and worship him. And then Satan will fulfill his promise to give Jesus all the power and the authority of these earthly kingdoms. Now, Matthew is recording what the devil is asking of Jesus, but we shouldn't assume that Matthew believes the claim of the devil to have the authority and power over these kingdoms, right? Right? Meaning, just because Satan makes this claim doesn't mean we should believe that what he's saying is true, especially given the source. And, and Jesus knows this, that he is the father of lies. And, I mean, for us, as, as we look around and see the world around us, see the pain and suffering in the world around us, it might look like the world is under the dominion of Satan. But make no mistake, there is only one king, and his name is Jesus. Paul says as much, the Apostle Paul says as much in uh, his letter to the Colossians in the first chapter. He says, he is the image, this is Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, 
all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Thus, this test is not a temptation from Satan about power and dominion, because Jesus already owns that. So if it's not a temptation toward greed and this desire for power, maybe it's a temptation toward disordered worship, worshiping the devil instead of God the Father. And, and that's definitely in mind here, uh, not to discount it completely. Uh, there is something more underneath the surface, which we'll get to in a second. But if Jesus is the fulfillment uh, for the people of Israel, the, the other son of God, if he is the true son of God, then part of this is a test to see if he will fail in the same way that the other son of God, the people of Israel, failed when they were in the wilderness, when they were on a mountain at the Mount Sinai, right? If you remember... They had been through some difficult times. Moses had been the spokesperson for God. God had given them the Ten Commandments and the law. But then Moses was kind of gone for a while, and they thought maybe God had abandoned them. Maybe Moses was dead. And so they go to Aaron and say, hey, uh, we don't know what happened to your brother Moses. We don't know if we can really trust this God that we can't really see. So make for us basically a God we can see. So he takes their gold, makes the golden calf, and then literally this idol that they've had for all of five minutes, they say, look, this is the God. These are the gods who brought us out of Egypt. And God's anger and wrath poured out on them. But will Jesus fail in the same way? Satan gives Jesus a similar request. Bow down and worship me instead. Don't worship the, 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 true, the true God. Do not worship Yahweh. And this is maybe a means to an end of achieving worldly power. But Jesus made it clear he will not fall for the devil's tricks. He knows God and God alone is sovereign over the kingdoms of the world and over all creation. Thus, God alone is worthy of worship. So what is, what is actually at the heart? What's under the surface? What's at the heart of this test? If it's not about worldly power or authority and not entirely about getting Jesus to bow down and worship him, uh, what is under the surface of this temptation? Well, Jesus knows and Satan knows that the Son of God must suffer and die for the sins of the world. We already looked at the suffering that, we, that was described in Isaiah 53 that the servant of the Lord must go through. And both Jesus and Satan Know this. The offer that Satan has put on the table is actually a temptation for Jesus to avoid suffering and death, to deviate from the Father's plan. You see, Jesus' role as king and Davidic Messiah was united, right, with this role of suffering servant, and here Jesus is being tempted by Satan to have one without the other. That Jesus is saying, hey, I can give you the authority that comes with being king, but I'm not going to make you suffer like your father will. Your heavenly father will make you suffer. To be the king and have the authority, your father is going to make you suffer. You're going to be scorned. You're going to be scourged. But I, your friend Satan, I have a way out. If you want the authority and power that comes with being the promised king and Messiah, just bow down, worship me. I'll give you what you really want without having to go through all that suffering. So, herein lies the ultimate question. Satan is asking Jesus, what type of son of God will you be? Are you going to be the type of son of God who is willing to suffer according to the Father's plan? And if you're not sure or not convinced that it is the Father's plan, there in Isaiah 53 it also says, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It's part of God's plan. 
So let's see how Jesus responds. Second aspect is we're just looking at his response, the response of the son. We're not going to camp out here for too long, but let's pay attention to how Jesus does respond to Satan. He responds in two ways. First, he identifies the source, and second, he identifies the truth. The source and the truth. The source, Satan himself. Pretty straightforward. Uh, After all, it's Satan who is standing before him. Same source as these other two temptations he's just faced. And he sees the trick that Satan is trying to pull. And he calls him out for who he is. Satan is not a friend of God, not a friend of Jesus. He does not have Jesus' best interests in mind. He is not concerned for what brings the Father more glory. He is Satan, the adversary. He's prowling around looking for any side of weakness within Jesus, hoping that he can cause Jesus to stumble. So Jesus simply and powerfully tells him, be gone. Be gone, Satan. So he identifies the source, and then he identifies the truth. The truth that Jesus once again falls back on is from Deuteronomy 6. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Now, the the point of Jesus quoting scripture is not just so he can kind of get into some Bible judo match with the devil, uh, but he wants to remind himself and Satan, his adversary, who actually is deserving of worship. See, the truth of Scripture is not just helpful in the midst of temptation. It is vital for understanding the world and our role in it. Specifically, it contains the truth we need to understand who God is, why he is deserving of worship, and what is asked of us in relation to him. So, when Jesus responds in this way to Satan, with the source and the truth, the adversary finally departs from him. And we see in verse 11 that after this series of tests and and temptations, the angels come and minister to him. And just an interesting point of note that this angelic help that just a moment before Satan was trying to get Jesus, like he was quoting Psalm 91, talking about this help that the angels can offer you, and calling on Jesus, say, hey, call on the angels, have them come help you, throw yourself off the temple, and Jesus refused to call on it, now that help is appropriately given. That father, the father sends the help to help him recover from this temptation ordeal. Now, each of the Gospels kind of paints a little bit of a different picture of this, of this testing time, this time of temptation. Uh, in Luke's account, at the end, it says that the devil left him until an opportune time. Satan re-enters the picture later in Luke, and um, it's just kind of the, the unique perspective that Luke gets, gives. But here in Matthew's Gospel, there's a sense in which Matthew wants us to see, and he's trying to communicate that that Jesus is constantly, even though the devil might have left his presence, he is constantly under continuous temptation. And a lot of it falls into the, the category of this third test. Will Jesus divert from the Father's plan? That's what it comes down to. Are you going to avoid suffering? Real quickly, I just want to hit a couple of these other instances in Matthew that kind of point to this picture that tell this story of that Jesus willingly not just fought through one temptation once and got it over with and then the rest of his life was painless and ministry was great, but like had to ongoingly fight this battle of do I really want to suffer? Am I really prepared to suffer? So Matthew 16, uh, the story of Peter, right? Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, and then with his very next breath, when Jesus says, hey, I need to go to Jerusalem, and I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to die, Jesus says, hey, no, Jesus, no. You don't need to do that. You don't, I just said you're the Son of God. You don't need to go suffer. And how does Jesus respond to Peter? 
get behind me, Satan. Calls, calls out the source. He knows that this is the same temptation the devil already tried. But instead of Satan standing before him, it's one of his closest disciples. But Jesus saw the lie for what it was. And then also uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Matthew 26, Jesus flat on his face in prayer, in anguish, over what's about to happen, what's about to transpire. He asks of God, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. He doesn't want it to happen. No one would want to go through what he's about to go through. But what does he immediately follow it up with? Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And even though it's not explicitly stated, I mean, you don't think the devil's there in that moment, seeing the anguish that Jesus is going through? He already did his work on Judas. Now he's got Jesus in anguish over what's going to happen. You don't think he's trying to plant those seeds in Jesus' mind? Say, hey, you don't need to suffer. Remember, I told you. You can have the, th- the authority. You can have the power. You don't need to suffer. And then finally, even on the cross, Matthew 27, Jesus is mocked by people passing by, by the priests, by the Pharisees, even by the robbers who are being crucified next to him. Those who walked by mocked him. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. He saved others. He cannot save himself. If God really loves him, let God save him. For this man said, I am a son of God. Even the robbers who were dying next to him mocked him. But Jesus' response in each of the scenarios to the same temptation is clear. He identifies the source, sees the lie, and he identifies the truth. So what is the truth for Jesus in this moment? The truth is that his role as the son is to do the will of the Father, not the other way around. He knows what his role is. And if it is the Father's will to crush the Son for the sake of the world, then the Son must suffer. Seems like a cruel father, does it not? What kind of loving father is it that wills for his son to be tortured and killed on behalf of the wicked? Is it even possible for a father like this to be considered loving? Why does he not take away suffering from this son whom he loves? Well, let's turn and look at this third aspect of the temptation, something that we're going to call the great reversal. What does God do in this great reversal? Well, let's start with this. Jesus knows the outcome. He is not ignorant of his purpose on earth. He knows his identity as the Son of God. Uh, His knowledge of his purpose did not begin at his baptism, though it was certainly made public there, uh, right? He, in his conversation with Nicodemus, as recorded in John 3, says that, For God did not send his Son to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. He knows the outcome. He knows what his purpose is. But Jesus also knows the cost. He knows the depths that he will have to suffer to accomplish the Father's plan. His suffering will not just be the rejection by men, but grueling torture, a hideous death, and the wrath of God poured out on him for the sins of the world. And yet, Jesus trusts and rests in the plan of God, in the plan of his Father. Despite what it costs him, Jesus is willing to accomplish the Father's plan. But what is this reversal we we speak of? 
Well, our enemy, our adversary, would have us to believe that all pain and suffering is pointless and worthless. The worst thing you can possibly experience is preventable suffering or hardship. That's the lie he tells us. If God really loves you, he wouldn't let you suffer. But the Father, in his perfect power, goodness, love, and grace, is able to take even the worst of our suffering and turn it into something good. See, we think the best way to deal with evil is simply to prevent it, keep it from happening. But what if, in God's perfect plan, the worst blow he can deal to suffering and evil itself is not to prevent it from happening, but to actually make evil subservient to the good. The worst thing he could do to evil is actually turn it into something for your good and my good. That even in the midst of suffering, there is good that comes from it, not just in eternity, but even in our earthly lives, where we are made to be more like Jesus. Now, I know we've covered a lot of ground, but let's start to try and land this plane. We see in this third temptation, right, that that Jesus is tempted to unrighteously seek the Davidic Messiah kingship without the rejection and torture that comes with being the suffering servant. Jesus responds to this temptation by identifying the source and identifying the truth, that God alone is worthy of our worship. And ultimately, we see that Jesus is willing to suffer according to the plan of the Father because he knows that the worst thing that can happen to evil and suffering is to make it subservient to the good. And the ultimate good of bringing us, reconciling us back to God. So where does, where does this message find us this morning? Where does this message find you? Where does it hit home? I, I think it can hit us in two ways. First, we can take comfort in knowing that whatever suffering we go through, God is forcing it to serve the good. We might not know the point of our individual suffering, why we're going through it, but we know there is one. And we know that God can work that for our good. Listen to these words from Paul in his letter to the Romans. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And then later, He continues and says this, And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. It might not be the good in our life that we want, but it's the good that he has planned. So that's the first thing. Second way I think it hits us is that we need to be careful about listening to illegitimate sources. And no, I'm not talking about fact-checking all the things on Facebook. We have to be careful of believing the lies of the enemy. Pastor Joey reminded us over the last couple weeks that very rarely will our adversary be so blatant about his temptations as he was with Jesus. Right? He's, not, he's probably not going to, you know, tempt your coworker to come to your cubicle tomorrow and say, hey, bow down and worship me. Although if he does, you're prepared. No, he, he works best, Satan works best when he is able to subtly twist the truth so that the lies sound good, and we end up buying it. Hook, line, and sinker. 
Think about this. Have you ever heard these things or have you ever told these things to yourself? These are the lies that Satan tries to twist, where he twists the truth. God loves you, does he not? He wouldn't want you to suffer. God loves you. He would not want you to be unhappy. Jesus suffered and died on the cross so that you shouldn't have to have any hardship. He loves you, doesn't he? He died for you. He doesn't want you to suffer. Well, maybe we start to believe those lies. We start to get angry, resentful, maybe asking questions, making resentful statements like, man, if God loves me, why is everything just so difficult? Why does nothing just seem to work the way it should? If, if God really loves me, why do I just constantly feel alone and isolated? Why does my job have to be so hard? If God loves me, why won't my kids listen to me when I try to care for them so well? Why is my marriage falling apart? If God really cares about me, why does it seem like everything I touch ends up breaking? If God really loves me, shouldn't this just be easier? The God of the universe loves me. Shouldn't this be easier? We need to be careful about listening to illegitimate sources. I was reminded of this quote yesterday by A.W. Tozer. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What we think about God and what we think about ourselves all comes together and what we believe about God affects how we relate to him, how we think about him, how we approach him for forgiveness, how we confess our sins to him. What we believe to be true about God is vitally important to who we are. So what do you view, how do you view God? Do you view God that you're okay with his plan even if it includes pain and hardship and trial in your life? Or does your view of God keep you from seeing that and you're only wanting to believe in a God who wants you to be happy? And that's not the real God at all. Perhaps Satan's greatest victory in your life is not sin, is not the sin in which you regularly indulge, but the dark thoughts of God's heart that cause you to go there in the first place and keep you cool toward him in the wake of it. It's a quote from the book Gentle and Lowly that Pastor Joey sent my way yesterday as well. Like, do you see, the, do you see what's happening here? That maybe Satan is not trying to just continually get you to indulge in this sin that you, you hate. Maybe he wants your focus to be on that, while at the same time he is causing you to think about God as less than who he is. Like God is withholding something from you. God doesn't have your best interests in mind. God doesn't really love you because you are suffering. He wants you focused on your sin, not on understanding more of who God is and the holiness and perfection and his love and compassion that he is willing and able and ready to unleash your way. So are you listening to what Satan says about God or are you listening to what God in his word says about himself? And I get it. It's not, it's not a fun answer. It's not the answer the world tells us that we should, be, we, we should be waiting for. But the truth is, we will have pain. We will have hardship. Jesus himself told his disciples, you will have trouble. And even after um, Peter rebuked him and then he rebuked Peter, Jesus says to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. 
It's true that Jesus took the full and complete weight of the wrath of God upon himself so that we might be reconciled to God. There is nothing lacking in Christ's sacrifice for sin. However, we will experience pain, brokenness, hardship, trials, tests, and more. And yet, God, because of the suffering and faithfulness of his son, can take the worst things the enemy can throw at us and turn them into something for our good and his glory. Jesus rested in the Father's plan, even when it was painfully difficult. What about you? What about me? Are we willing to rest in God's plan, even when it feels like everything is crumbling around us? Listen to these words from Jesus to his disciples. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, because I have overcome the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of your Son. Your Son, Jesus, whom you loved, but you sent to be the propitiation, to be the sacrifice for our sins. Thank you, Father, for your perfect plan that you saw fit to redeem us from sin and death. And Father, help us to see the truth. Help us to see the devil's lies for what they are and see your word, your truth for what it is. Help us to take comfort knowing that Jesus willingly suffered and died on our behalf. He redeemed us. He bought us out of slavery, brought us from death to life. Father, we thank you for your plan that we have the opportunity to have a relationship with you because of the faithfulness of your son. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.